Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. My name is Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake, artificially inflated drug prices. Today is the seventh episode of our podcast, and as a result, I've brought some friends in to help me with hosting duties for today's episode, as the format of today's episode is going to be a little different than past episodes. This is because today's episode is focused on questions related to the podcast and the drug supply chain in general. First, I have with me Kaylee Boston. Kaylee is a volunteer with 46 Brooklyn who helps behind the scenes to keep 46 Brooklyn running from a paperwork standpoint, but also took a key interest in this podcast and has helped with the scripting for every episode to date. Hello, everyone. First off, it's been a lot of fun to help create and produce this podcast series. Before I started working with 46 Brooklyn Research, I had lived in six different states as well as England for almost two years. During all those moves, I've experienced a world of drug pricing, including a sweet, sweet taste of universal healthcare. Needless to say, like Ben, I am also an American consumer fed up with fake artificially inflated drug prices. Luckily, when I moved to the welcoming city of Dayton, Ohio, I soon became acquainted with Ben Link and Antonio Chacha. Since fixing the healthcare system is a passion of mine, it was fitting to team up with Ben and Antonio at Three Axis Advisors and 46 Brooklyn Research. I now am the operations manager at Three Axis and the community outreach coordinator at 46 Brooklyn Research. And we're lucky to have you, Kaylee. Thank you. Second, I have the man, the myth, the pharmacy legend, Antonio Chacha. In pharmacy circles, Antonio likely needs no introduction. But as CEO of 46 Brooklyn, Antonio has helped steer the overall course of 46 Brooklyn since its inception, including this podcast. Antonio, for those who somehow don't know you, give us a little bit about yourself. So I am born and raised in pharmacy. I come from a hospital pharmacy uh, household. My dad worked uh, at university hospitals up in the Cleveland area. My sister is a Walmart pharmacist also up in Northeast Ohio. I originally wanted to be just like them just until I hit organic chemistry uh, at Ohio State and decided that journalism and political science were a much brighter future for myself. Uh, I had worked as a pharmacy technician for a few years at a small regional pharmacy uh, grocery store up in the Cleveland area. And I really liked it. Uh, But what I saw was that pharmacy was getting increasingly more complex. Uh, The the prices at the cash register were slowly increasing over time. And uh, what I also saw was that my colleagues that were working in other pharmacies were having a much worse time (laughs) in their jobs uh, as time and time went on. So, I said goodbye to pharmacy forever and forever turned out to be just a couple of years. And I, uh, upon graduation uh, from Ohio State, I made my way back to the pharmacy world where I uh, headed up government affairs for the Ohio Pharmacists Association. In that time, uh, my introduction into the world of drug pricing was really around how pharmacists had no idea how pricing was even created. And their consternation with how they were compensated for the drugs that they were dispensing at the pharmacy counter, regardless of whether pharmacists were paid adequately, too much or too little, um, the 
idea that a pharmacist who lives in the center of the transaction has no idea on how price is created just boggled my mind. And so um, since then, I've been on an extended journey to understand how price is created, what price even means, and then most importantly, perhaps most exciting, to show how people exploit price to their own benefit to the detriment of the patient and or the plan sponsor. So it has been a, uh, a great ride so far in diagnosing dysfunction in the drug supply chain. And uh, very excited for uh, the birth of the 46 Brooklyn podcast. Give a ton of credit to uh, Ben and Kaylee uh, for getting it all together. Uh, and I am happy to participate as I have a face made for radio. <laughs> all right. Well, on today's episode, like I said, we're going to do things a little bit differently. And so I'm actually going to turn it over to Kaylee to ask us some questions, Antonio, and then we'll respond with our thoughts based upon what we've done thus far in the podcast. All right. Our first question today is going to be, what can be done about brand pricing understanding that a large portion of price concession occurs after the sale of the prescription? Ooh, this is a fun one. Uh, so why not start right out of the gate with the brand prices themselves? You know, when if if I'm somebody who has not spent a sick amount of time studying drug pricing and my exposure to the drug pricing debate is largely coming from politicians who might be complaining about drug prices or newspaper headlines uh, that say drug prices are on the rise. You know, most people don't experience sticker shock at the pharmacy counter because they have some sort of benefits coverage. Uh, so when you hear the, that drug prices are high, for some, you might think that's a figment of your imagination. But trust me when I say drug prices are, in fact, very real. And many people who are in high deductible health plans or their drugs aren't covered, the prices are very real. And so let's talk about those headlines. The list prices are going up. Right now, we're recording this in February. We just passed January. January is when all the big drug prices go up. And you see the headlines. They come out all over the place. Every single uh, news publication will have some sort of story about the, the apocalypse that is high drug prices. What most people don't understand is that the list price, and is, has been discussed by uh, Ben on this podcast before, there is just, there's too many prices <laughs> in order to actually call anything, any one thing a price. And so, while yes, the list prices are going up, there is a very significant lack of understanding that off those list prices can be significant concessions and ultimately our cost exposure, whether we are patients or an employer paying for uh, benefits coverage, is ultimately going to be arrived, derived from the sausage making process of insurance and pharmacy benefits, ultimately dictating what our end costs will be at the pharmacy counter. Yeah, I think some of the origin for where this question perhaps comes from is some of the things you're talking about, Antonio, right? If we look at insulin, the poster child of brand name and unaffordable drug cost, if you follow it as closely as we do, you can see on the one hand, data that says that these products should be about, you know, $30-ish maybe net of all these rebates that are floating out there. But on the other hand, if you go onto 46 Brooklyn and look at the NADAC price for any of these insulins, they're hundreds of dollars, which reflects this weird paradigm where we know these products are offering rebates and everything we do to try and quantify price in the system 
fails to really account for that kind of in their intermediary, in the middle problem that is rebates. Because at the end of the day, if you want pharmacy to dispense insulin, it needs to receive enough money to buy the next box of insulin. And so if you don't, if you try and pay pharmacy in a way that's reflective of rebates, you know, pharmacy can't acquire the drug at the rebate. And it goes back to exactly what you're saying in that in this system, it's not just consumers that are buying the drug, it's their other people's money, the, the health plan, the plan sponsor, the et cetera, that is also alongside helping to buy this. And it's all that murky middle that perhaps, you know, contributes to this idea of how are we going to address drug costs when 90% of costs are brands? And the problem with brand pricing is less quantifying price, perhaps, as opposed to quantifying rebate. So let's throw some salt in that wound real quick. So I, I, I'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, a recent uh, hearing I got to participate in in the state of Indiana. There's a piece of legislation going through that would aim to take all the uh, discounts that manufacturers pass to PBMs and pass them all the way through to a patient at the point of sale. What does that mean? If I'm somebody that doesn't understand drug pricing, doesn't understand rebates, what does that mean? Well, I'll draw you to a, a great article that ran in Axios uh, last year. Bob Herman, who, if you don't subscribe to Axios Vitals, highly recommend. But they were looking at the list price of Lantus, which is one of the most popular insulin medications that you could get in the marketplace. The list price for Lantus as of last year was around $284 a vial. So when you hear about diabetics, you know, saying, I got to ration my insulin supply because I can't afford it, recognize that they're looking at a $284 list price product that they have to purchase on a regular basis. All right. What Axios found, and this is all based on SSR health data, is that after you tabulate all the rebates and discounts that the drug maker Sanofi uh, shaves off the list price in order to pay off PBMs in exchange for covering that product in the first place, the actual net price that Sanofi takes in is less than $40 a vial. So we're talking about a product that has a list price and the real price, the real price is 13% of the actual list price of that product. Now, granted, that gross to net difference, which manufacturers like to talk about a lot and say, look, we have to have high list prices because of these dynamics. Well, it's true in competitive classes of medications. For products that don't have a lot of competition, the demand for rebates or the ability to get rebates is not as significant. So you're really looking at a spectrum where some drugs have really, really high list prices and almost no rebates to speak of. And then other drugs that are in competitive classes like insulin, where the pr list price is way overinflated relative to its actual cost. That is so messed up that the <laughs> disconnect, that competition actually inflates prices rather than lowering them. So back to the hearing that, we, that I got to participate in Indiana, they're debating a bill that says, look, we'll use Sanofi's Lantus as an example. If the bill were to pass, 85% of all those discounts, around 200 or just over $200 worth of discounts, would have to be rendered to the patient at the point of sale rather than paying $284 they'd be paying less than 100 or less than 50 even for that product. Imagine how screwy that system is if you are a patient and a patient testified in that hearing that said, I'm actively rationing my insulin. I could die because I can't afford my medications because they're not getting access to the actual net price that, of that product. It begs the question that if you got rid of those rebates and something, and I'll share my biases, that you get rid of the complexity of the system as well, could patients actually be saving a lot more at the point of sale 
and not necessarily be putting their life at risk. So we talk about rebates, all right? And we talk about this a lot at 46 Brooklyn. Do not just think of them as a discount. We like to think of them in their realest form, which is they are money that's being generated by sick people. A sick person needs a medication and a rebate is only proffered when that patient takes that medication. So the patient being sick and taking the medication is generating these discounts that are being used for other purposes other than the well-being of that patient. You're absolutely right. I mean, we don't know what a no rebate world looks like is part of the problem because we don't have a lot of data on what that is going on in the middle. And so if it goes away, do prices drop by 90% for insulin or you know, 20% in a different drug class? We just don't know. And that makes answering that question a little bit hard, Kaylee. As always, my mind is blown. <laughs> uh, for our second question, does a pricing benchmark rooted in pharmacy acquisition offer any solutions for brand pricing or does it mainly benefit generic pricing? So we explored some of that in as we were answering the first question, right? But we know that pharmacies, as they go to acquire drugs, also likely get rebates or price concessions. Some of those take the form of buying below a pricing benchmark, which we've already talked about, but sometimes they take retroactive form, i.e. rebate, where the price the pharmacy recognizes at the end of the day when all the dollars and cents are accounted for is some degree less because they paid their bills on time or they bought so much insulin, don't you know, that they got a better price because they effectively bought in bulk, right? And so we do struggle with this paradigm as we consider, as we're asked to do from time to time, what if we do this? What if this policy change is made? What does the future look like if drug pricing are known? Without question, the problem that we are facing right now is a lack of transparency. And that's kind of ironic when you consider we just spent how many podcast episodes talking about nine different pricing benchmarks but that's really the truth is that a lot of our pricing focus has been on the extreme ends of the supply chain. We have a lot of pricing benchmarks for what manufacturers are doing, those pesky manufacturers and meddling with all their different pricing benchmarks, AMP, AWP, WAC, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of pricing benchmarks for pharmacy, whether it's guessing what should be a fair compensation, like say a MAC rate or their UNC price, what they'd like to be paid. We don't know a lot about what's going on in the middle. But that middle is probably pretty big because we know we spend a lot of money on healthcare costs and on drug costs. I like to think of the drug prices as a custard donut <laughs> and, <laughs> and all the good custards in the middle, right? And so you've got, yeah, wholesalers, all right? So pharmacies will generate these huge discounts off of off these products based on these bulk purchases. And really, that's the story of the entire drug channel is it's ultimately a story of leverage, Right. If you have greater sophistication, greater size and leverage, you are getting a better deal, right? If you have le the least sophistication and the least amount of leverage, you're probably getting the worst deal. And so we talk about inequity, you know, in healthcare, never is it more pronounced than in the purchase of medications, where a drug maker, in exchange for a lot of patients getting their drugs as covered by an insurer on behalf or on a PBM on behalf of an insurance company, 
they could buy their way into the patient's mouths, essentially, because the PBM is using all those individual lives as leverage against them. And so the PBM is able to act as kind of the bouncer at the bar to say, look, drug maker, if you want in, you're going to have to pay the toll. And so that's how the rebate is generated in the first place. On the pharmacy end of the transaction, exact same thing. The pharmacy goes to the wholesaler who's already been shaking down drug makers to say, look, if you want us, McKesson or Cardinal Health, to inventory your product on our shelves that will inevitably make its way to the pharmacies who purchase from us, we will we would demand big discounts. And then the pharmacies in, in, in turn then turn around to purchase those medications, get big discounts the more that they purchase. So everything in the pharmacy channel has been predicated on volume, which is a twisted way of looking at healthcare to say the more pills that you buy, the more pills that you stuff into patients' mouths, the bigger discounts that you'll get, the more money you'll make, okay? So this is why, you know, one of the reasons I get kind of fired up about just this concept, right? And look, if we were buying lumber, that might seem like a relevant thing. If I go into the Home Depot or Lowe's and I'm buying one two by four, yeah, maybe it makes sense that I pay that full price. But if I buy 100 or I buy 200, maybe it does make sense, all right? You don't have to back the truck up as many times, all right? You're only swiping it once, right? Those types of things make sense. When we talk about healthcare, it just feels a little bit more twisted. And so back to the brand drugs, yes, yeah, sometimes you can get those discounts, all right? But what about on the generics, Ben? What happens with a generic drug? Is that where we see a lot of the rebates? Because it's not where we see it on the drug maker side. But what about on that pharmacy end? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously we kind of know the answer there a little bit, Antonio, in that we don't have to even look for uh, or, or have insider knowledge necessarily to answer that if we look at what the market is currently doing. Right now, you're seeing the growth of cash-only pharmacies, right? The most prominent, perhaps, is Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company and their online pharmacy. But there are predecessors, Blueberry Pharmacy. We've mentioned them before on 46 Brooklyn. And what are they doing? They're buying drugs within a competitive market of various wholesalers and getting drugs very, very cheaply, very cheap generic drug costs. But the rub is we're not getting brand drugs in any of those models. No one is getting access to the high dollars. They're not necessarily offering payers, employer sponsors, benefits with their models, right? If you're a patient, any one of those options look very favorable if you're taking one of the medications they're offering. But as a plan sponsor, perhaps you have to consider the plethora of drugs that are out there to be given. And so, yes, to your question, we know that from a wholesaler relationship, pharmacies are generally concerned about or, or generating their money off of generic drugs. But the reason they're engaging the wholesaler is largely because of the stick that they carry for brands. If I'm a little independent pharmacy, like these Mark Cuban or Blueberry or any of these other ones, they likely can't bring a big enough stick, don't have the volume to your earlier comments to ask for the kind of price concessions that they need to offer competitive prices, and so they don't. All right. For question three, uh, kind of an interesting question that I often uh, want the answer to as well. Do other countries use AWP, or are there other pricing benchmarks? I got to take this one first, Antonio. <laughs> <laughs> so... No, generally speaking, uh, again, talking in generalities because countries is a big C, uh, you know, lots of different countries out there. But generally speaking, no, countries are not 
engaging in the kind of pricing distortions that we know as AWP. In a lot of the westernized democracies that we draw perhaps fair comparisons between U.S. healthcare and, and them, they have a an agency, a government body, a source of drug pricing truth. They have the transaction facilitator or the stock market that we, you know, talked about on prior episodes where they'll go in and they understand what it costs to bring the drug into the system and they will allow markups to that. So for example, more specifically, the Danish system, you know, the Danes go and they get drug prices from their pharmacies every two weeks. They know what they're buying, just kind of like our NADAC, every two weeks. To be fair, they're smaller. They have fewer pharmacies that they have to go ask. But once they know what the price is, they can publish that price and say, pharmacies, you can take a fixed markup in addition to what this costs you so that you can cover your own operating costs. And what that means is that if you're trying to compete in that market, you know the price point. You have to be at this price to be viable if you want to get people to buy your drug. If you come in too high, nobody's going to buy you. Alternatively, you have systems like you know Australia, which we've also written about on 46 Brooklyn, where the government, through its public health benefit, is engaged in certain drug pricing negotiations where they have, again, established a price for the drug based upon what they know is the fair market value because, again, they went about establishing it. They go so far as to say for people that get the price uh, through their government program in Australia, you have to print the price on the label and compare it in price to what the patient is paying so that they understand some of the value that their benefit is producing in doing so. So, you know, again, I feel very comfortable saying that in general, countries do not have an AWP-based system of reimbursement. And I don't think it takes a rocket science or any listener of this podcast at this point to understand why they might have chosen less uh, or different methods to paying for drugs in AWP. I still have to shake my head and wonder how AWP is still an actual thing. For those of you that don't know like the history of AWP, it has been litigated. It has been exposed by government entities as being one of the most fundamentally broken pricing benchmarks that you can have for a drug. And in fact, there's been some resolution to that effect because of uh, prior litigation, but unfortunately it only impacted the brand space. So for generic drugs, the AWP or the average wholesale price or in the pharmacy world, as we like to giggle and say, it's ain't what's paid. Uh, while AWP is, is ain't what's paid, it is what is billed. <laughs> and so unfortunately you have these artificially inflated sticker prices and, and why do they exist? You know, as, as Ben found in one of our three axis advisors reports on, on Massachusetts Medicaid, where we were examining pharmacy reimbursements and looking at margins that they incurred on dispensing products to Medicaid beneficiaries. Most people don't understand the, this concept, but in the pharmacy world, if you're a provider, you are compensated based upon what we typically call a lesser of methodology. And that lesser of methodology dictates that the pharmacy will be paid at any number of benchmarks, you know, invent anything that you want. You know, we're going to pay you X or we're going to pay you Y or we're going to pay you Z or the lesser of whatever you charge us, which, as you covered before, is that usual and customary price, which is usually based upon some derivative of AWP. And so if I'm going to pay anyone for a particular product or service, and that, and that 
vendor that I want to use is going to be paid based upon X, Y, or Z or whatever they bill me. Well, from their standpoint, their incentive is to make sure whatever they bill is as high as humanly possible so that just in case X, Y, or Z isn't that high, or let's say they do go that high, they are maximizing their return, okay? You're making sure that you're cannibalizing whatever that that worst, <laughs> that worst customer essentially wants to pay. And so you have a system, again, predicated on price discrimination in that regard, that if a provider is going to be paid X, Y, or Z or whatever they bill, whatever they bill has to be as high as humanly possible to make sure that X, Y, if X, Y, and Z is high, they're getting all of that margin. And so everybody in the drug supply chain is ultimately going to be compensated in some way, shape, or form, not just the pharmacy. And it is all going to be predicated off of how much that they bill. That will be the starting point for determining below that what they will be paid. So the incentive of every participant in the drug channel is to have a price as human, as high as humanly possible. In pharmacy, that just so happens to be AWP. And so what we typically see in a pharmacy, if you were to walk behind the counter of a pharmacy and sit down at their computer and see where the pharmacy made their money, you'll find that about on half the prescriptions that a pharmacy dispenses, they're going to actually be, be reimbursed below their cost or just barely breaking even on that prescription. Then there's probably another third or more prescriptions that are generating what I would say is a fair rate of compensation, right? Just it's covering the cost of the drug. It's covering the, you know, the bill or the bottle, the label, the price of uh, the staff, the electricity, the overhead, you name it. But then there's what we typically call the long end of the tail, the small sliver of drugs left over where pharmacies are wildly overpaid relative to what would be what we all would consider to be a fair cost. Well, if a pharmacy were to lower their usual and customary prices, which again are all based off of AWP, well, now all of a sudden they would be cutting off the long end of the tail that those overpriced medications where they're, where they're getting a lot of reimbursement that makes up for the big time losses, which is why when you go on GoodRx, if you're somebody listening to this podcast, you have no idea what's going on in pharmacy. If you've ever been on GoodRx, you'll look, you'll go up, you'll type in their drug, you'll see a, a $2,000 list price drug with an X through it, right? And then you'll see $20 <laughs> with the GoodRx price. Well, most people will just focus on the $20. What they're leaving out is that is what's been X'd out. Recognize that that is usually some price that is predicated off of AWP, which shows you the disconnect that exists between those sticker prices and the actual prices that can be achieved at the pharmacy counter. It's a good reminder for, you know, in making comparisons to international markets, they're not all going to be ones that have a heavy centralized payer base, universal healthcare as, as to Kaylee's own experience, right? We saw some of that when we did uh, the insulin work internationally at 3Axis also, where we we uh, were able to get prices from various pharmacies in a bunch of, uh, of African countries. And while, you know, it's not clear in the data because we aggregate it, in looking through that data, there was a wide disparity in some of the pharmacy prices, you know, pharmacy to pharmacy within a country, because they're effectively living in a time before shall we say, AWP as a pricing benchmark, right? We, we reviewed that on, on prior episodes of this podcast where at some level, if you have no other payer for drugs, the only price that matters is the pharmacy's price. And we still have some of that today in the US because of usual and customary and all the stuff you just reviewed, Antonio. But it's an important in answering the question about comparison to other countries' use of AWP. You might be able to argue that our own experience does perhaps say 
that there is some evidence of quote unquote a U, uh, an AWP boogeyman in there because they're fully reliant upon the cash price from the pharmacy and they don't have a central authority creating that kind of transaction facilitator role. While we're talking about foreign countries, uh, let's that will bring us into question four. Are there any foreign modules that you guys find interesting? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of ideas within international healthcare that I find interesting in terms of how they go about delivering it. I think that, you know, at the risk of being a little bit of a homer, it is fair to say that a lot of the the analysis that get done in those spaces are not nuanced enough because we all bring to analysis that we do our own inherent biases, right? And so if you are conducting an analysis on how country X delivers surgeries or drugs or whatever have you, you're going to come into that analysis thinking something akin of this is right, this is wrong, this is how it should be, this is how it shouldn't be. It's, it's hard to devoid yourself from, say, a belief of is, you know, healthcare right? Are people, you know, entitled to healthcare? If you don't address that issue kind of up front, then you might, you know, bring in an implicit bias to the analysis that isn't appropriately accounted for when you assess whether a country with universal healthcare is bringing a better product, a better solution to the marketplace. I think what's most interesting to me as it relates to drug prices is how they're going about quantifying drug price, right? How are they going about getting the pricing benchmarks that they're relying upon, if it's more than, than one, and how are they sharing the cost within the system? Uh, you know, we talked about it before in our Australia analysis, but they have fixed patient maximum co-payments within the, the uh, PBS, pharmacy benefit schedule in, in Australia. That seems a lot more like insurance to me and my own biases than a system which says, we know drug prices are fake. We know that they're inflated to cover and provide these rebates to various people within the supply chain. Let's go ahead and sell it to people at this list price during the deductible, which happens every day in the United States, especially, again, at this time of the year, which is in February, and people are you know, just dealing with their deductibles having been reset. That's a little bit of a, of a harder pill to swallow uh, in, you know, taking a view of the system today. So I think about other countries, you know, I think, you know, back to the biases comment, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks who uh, would, you know, put a, a universal payer system on a pedestal, um, you know, would argue that it, uh, it would eliminate a lot of the pricing dysfunction. And I think that's, I think there's, I think there's validity to that. But let's take the idea of whether or not, you know, Healthcare is a fundamental right or not, or whether we have a you know government you know imposed pricing system versus a more laissez-faire one. The one thing that I think government has shown that they could be very effective at is at least defining what truth is. And so I, I look to our our Medicaid program as a, as a textbook example, and this is you know been right within your wheelhouse. You know, regardless of whether or not Medicaid is you know pragmatically the right thing to, to have as a policy perspective, whether or not the government pays for healthcare or not, one of the things that I think the government does have um, and should do is defining what price is. You know, currently left to the, left to the, the market, left to its own devices, as you've established here before on the previous podcast, is that, look, price is whatever the heck people say it is, right? 
And just when you've identified all the benchmarks, a new one will <laughs> will arise. And so the question then is, is what the hell is the price of a drug? And I think where Medicaid has stepped in and really, I think, exer- exerted some disruptive uh, force in this is to say, look, we understand that price is complex. We understand that the drug supply chain as a, you know, as an enterprise, all right, wants to hide what price is. So we as Medicaid will say, no, <laughs> we want to know what the actual price is. And we can nitpick over whether they've done this effectively or not. But what Medicaid has done is say, they said, look, pharmacies, if you are going to participate within our, you know, within this market, all right, we're going to ask of you, what did you pay to put the drug on the shelf? So regardless of what benchmarks that we could use to quantify price above the pharmacy or below the pharmacy, we are going to look right in the middle and say, pharmacy, what was the cost of lisinopril that you just bought and put on your on your shelf? Now, the pharmacy might get back-end discounts, blah, 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 but that's where NADAC came from, National Average Drug Acquisition Cost. And it represented, everybody in the industry hated it when, when, when they first proposed creating this benchmark. But look what it has done, all right? Just a, 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 a very small example is what happened here in Ohio. You know, when the state Medicaid program was complaining about increased costs for prescription drugs, well, simultaneously, pharmacies were complaining about, re- about reimbursement rates within, within the same program. Where was truth? The pharmacy says, this is what I got paid. So what? <laughs> well, how do we know what the fair price is for you to be paid? How do we know what, what a fair rate of reimbursement is, especially if we don't even know the underlying cost? Well, this is how 46 Brooklyn was born. Was it when Eric Packman, you know, who was running a small chain of pharmacies in Ohio at the time, said, I can't make ends meet with these Medicaid payments. He took his reimbursement data and saw what his pharmacies were being compensated and threw NADAC right underneath it to say, okay, I may not know whether I'm getting a fair price for my medications that I'm purchasing at my pharmacies, but at least NADAC is a representation or a snapshot of what the going rate is for pharmacies to put the pills on the shelf. And if I look at my reimbursements and compare that to NADAC over time, I could see that I am getting crushed. All right. And so NADAC represented a truth serum, if you will, to say, what is the price of medication? And based on what the pharmacies are being compensated or based upon what the state is being charged, now we can see how are the trends of what the state's being charged versus what the pharmacies are being paid comparing to the actual prices of medications over time. Just that little insertion of truth represented a huge opportunity and a foothold to pull the rug out from under what became a $244 million arbitrage scam that PBMs were playing in the state of Ohio and resulted in a huge tidal wave of disruption across the country because people were taking for granted that whatever the PBMs were telling them the price was, was in fact the price. Yeah, it's kind of like when uh, we all sit here and complain about drug prices, but we have yet to adopt a model that doesn't say profit off of drug prices, right? I think that's at the risk of putting words in your mouth, Antonio, right? That's kind of what we're talking about with this idea of of truth, right? Is that ultimately pills have to get on the shelf somehow. We need to know effectively what that price is. And then we can't expect to pay just that price because there's overhead. There's there's costs associated with actually getting those pills to people beyond just 
putting them on the shelf. As beautiful as they might look on the shelf, they ultimately need to end up in bottles and in people's medicines cabinets. So on the inter international front, I mean, this is where I, I become enamored with what some of them have done. Not necessarily to say we need price controls or we don't need price controls. What we need is, is a government to come in and say, look, this is what price is. That is such a gift to the market to say, look, rather than relying on the supply chain to invent its own prices and then charge unsuspecting customers whatever the heck they want, the government can come in and say, look, if you want to participate in a program, back to our Ohio Medicaid, Ohio Medicaid is moving in the direction now that they've been taken advantage of to say, pharmacy providers, we expect that you will tell us what your costs will be. And we will base pricing off of that reality of where the marketplace is. That learning could be extrapolated to every layer of the drug channel, not necessarily for price setting purposes, but for benchmarking purposes. Because today, the lack of truth in drug pricing creates mystery. And as we've talked about many times, with mystery comes margin. So uh, I know we're getting a little bit long on time. So Kaylee, why don't just one more question? Okay, for our final question today, in your opinion, if you could change only one thing in our current drug supply chain to make the greatest impact on drug pricing, what would that be? In a word, it's transparency. It's got to be. It's got to be understanding what the cost of the service is. And that cost is multifactorial. It's the drug cost. It's the cost of a pharmacist providing that drug to you versus just picking it up off of the counter like you do with an over-the-counter. And until we understand just that simple fundamental, we'll never have an assessment of value because if you don't know what the cost is, you can't assign a value to it. I'm going to piggyback on that and kind of agree and then try and say something a little bit differently. You know, one thing that I, I, that I think that we stand for in both the work that we do in public education at 46 Brooklyn and uh, the four higher work we do at Three Axis Advisors is, is really centered around you know, the discovery of drug pricing truth. Um, you know, if I would characterize what we do in a very, very broad general level, it's that we are the enemies of pricing arbitrage. And uh, transparency is a, is a tremendous disinfectant to achieve that. Um, but I would say that if I could change anything, it would be the sleight of hand that occurs with drug pricing. Uh, I want to know what the cost is of everything, not just the product, but the service. Um, sometimes I think it could be misconstrued that we're enemies of any certain member of the drug supply chain or any different or every, any given layer. In fact, I believe the functionality that we have in the drug supply chain is incredibly important. And I think that in many ways, despite how broken it is, it is built in a, in a somewhat artful way. Uh, unfortunately, it's plagued by poor incentives and incredible opacity that enables dysfunction. And it actually encourages it. And unfortunately, at the end of it, we're all stuck paying higher prices than we should, um, or at least we're exposed to higher prices than we should. And so if I could change one thing, it would be removing the sleight of hand. And, and I guess I'm cheating off Ben's papers here, but ultimately that does go back to transparency, which I believe that um, you know it, we try to do in perhaps imperfect form over at 46 Brooklyn, but to provide as many puzzle pieces as we can on the board, knowing full well that we may not get access to all the puzzle pieces, but the more that we can do to piece things together, I think the better informed we are as consumers so that we can eliminate that sleight of hand. 
Absolutely. And unfortunately, we have to leave today's conversation there. I want to thank both of my guests for joining. I think this was one of our better podcast episodes for sure, certainly as a result of your participation. And I would encourage our listeners to please submit more questions because we'll almost certainly do this again. And as a final reminder for today's episode, we do have a glossary of some of the key industry terms available on our website. So if you're a little confused over some of the nomenclature we use today, because this podcast didn't follow the pre-script, where I can define those terms for you along the way, be sure to check out the glossary. So thank you for tuning in, and I hope to see you next time. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.